0: Well, we're in this series, as I mentioned earlier, uh, on Grace to the West Shore, and it's a mini-series. Next week, we'll have Sonny Akhtar, our Pakistani Anglican friend, come and share his testimony with us, and then we'll wrap it up on Labor Day weekend. And so last week, we looked at the person of Naaman. We heard Lynette read verses 1 through 3 for us, and what we discovered last week is that he really is just like so many people that we know around here in the West Shore of Cleveland. In quick review for those of you who weren't here, and review for those of you who even were, we learned that why people seek and how they find belief in Christ. First, we have to reject the lie of self-sufficiency. You know, every made-for-TV movie is filled with self-sufficiency, especially the Hallmark Channel, you know. You got problems, you have everything you can to fix them. Right? Well, that's not exactly true. The Bible says it's exactly the opposite. And secondly, we learned that the lie of self-sufficiency, you, you can't, the world can't give us the, the solutions to our problems. It doesn't work that way. And until you understand that, you can't fully make belief in Christ your own. You can't become a Christian, even, if you don't reject that lie. And next we learned how people find, they, we find the Lord. Because as Naaman, as we discovered, the only cure for his body was to undergo a revelation in the way that he thinks. He has to learn that this God only gives his cure, his salvation, by offering it as a free gift to you, as a gift of grace. And that nobody can possibly merit salvation. We were mindful of Romans 3.23 where Paul says, we're all short, there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for Naaman to learn that, to simply go on as a, as a humble sinner relying on God's grace, meant not only that he got a cure for his body, but in addition, he had to completely rethink the way He understood spiritual reality. In other words, he had to come to the understanding, if you want to be a follower of God, all you need is need. So here we have Naaman saying, I have all this stuff to offer you for my cure. But he had to learn that he really, although he had all this stuff, he had nothing to bring to the Lord. He had to come to that place that there's really no difference between him and that redneck that lives in the West Virginia trailer. He had nothing, and most, even today, struggle with that thought that before God, they, they can bring nothing. And when Naaman did come to that understanding that he had nothing, he not only get, got healing, but he met God. And as you remember, I said one of the reasons that we're looking at him is that he's like so many people that we know here on the West Shore. Successful, affluent, educated, proud. That was Naaman. You know somebody like that? Well, this is good news for not only us, but for them as well. And so what we're going to look at today is the second half of that story, from verse 15 down, because what we're going to see is what believers look like, what they live like. And we're going to get three snapshots, three pictures, Naaman, Gehazi, and a surprise snapshot that we're going to see in a little bit. So let's first, what does belief look like? Look at verse, uh, it's verse 15 with me. Then Naaman returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, for a believer, there's really three signs that we're seeing in Naaman. And the first one is this. Notice, Naaman comes and says, here's a Ramon worshiper. And he recognizes that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. If Naaman had, like every other ancient, come back and said, now I know that your God is better than my God, Ramon, he wouldn't have gotten it. It wouldn't have indicated a change in his worldview. But the first sign that he shows is that there's a change in his thinking. Because he lives in a pluralistic society. There are many gods. There's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to achieve eternal bliss. Many faiths. But he comes back and says, there's no God but Israel. That's as outrageous a statement then as it is today. An encounter with God is more than your personal and mystical experience. You know Your feelings won't change unless your heart changes, and your heart won't change unless your thinking changes. And according to the Bible, your heart is not the seat of your emotions. Your heart is the seat of your trusts, and your heart determines what you trust in, what you hope in, and what you live for. And you don't have a heart change until you have a mind change. When you say, I was trusting this, and now I'm trusting that. So that's the first sign that we see in Naaman, that he has a thinking change. A change in his thinking that says, there's no other God but Israel. And secondly, there's a, the second part of verse 15. He has a totally different change in the way he views his possessions. So he says, so now, accept a present from your servant. Well, that's a radical statement. Here's the joint, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of Syria saying to the prophet, from Israel, that I am now your servant, Elisha. And he has a completely different view of his uh, possessions now. He's willing to give them away to Elisha. Remember how much this is, friends. Ten talents of silver is 500 pounds of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold is 2,400 pounds of gold. What's the gold value now? This is a lot of money. And there's 10 changes of clothing, and otherwise there's 10 $1,000 suits from Joseph A. Bank. All right? He came to part with all this stuff so he could get the cure. That's what his strategy was, right? And why not? Of course, that's what he would do. But he comes back and says, now, please accept this as a present from your servant. Because now... He's not giving his possessions to gain anything. He's giving his money out of gratitude and joy. See, so many people will give away to their pet projects or whatever it might be to the church or to their charity to feel better about themselves. And they do that because it's their self-esteem. Because that's what money can be to us, right? It's our self-esteem currency. It determines how we feel about ourselves. You know, as if we've We've made it in this life somehow. But when God is your self-esteem, like Naaman is right now, it's just money. It's from him anyway, and we can give it away freely. See, everything we have is a gift from God, and it's his. So all of a sudden, you feel rich, and you encounter, that encounter puts you on the Jesus path which is my life for yours. Satan in the world's path is your life for mine, and you end up using people to climb the corporate ladder, using people to network, using others, but that's not the way of Jesus. And Christians are those who have a change of thinking and a change of attitude toward their possessions. And last, what we see is that God becomes central to every part of his life. Look down a little bit to verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, he won't take the gift. Elisha won't take the gift. So now he says, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt, sac- burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. See, there's two things going on here. First of all, does does Naaman say, Elisha, I want to stay here with you and learn all that you know about the Lord? No, he doesn't. He He wants to go back to his people. And in going back to his people, the second part is, he doesn't want to keep his religion private. See, it's a little confusing, right? Why does he want two mule loads of earth? This is Israelite dirt. That's all it is, just dirt. Because what he's going to do with it, this is, the Ramon is is the state god of Syria. Ramon is like the Native American totem poles. It's kind of the, the characters of the tribe worshipped. And that's what, who Ramon is. It's all the characters of the ancient world of Syria that the Syrians worship Ramon in the temple. And when state affairs by the king are held, they're held there. And what he's saying to Elisha is, Master, when I go back, now that I'm a follower of the Lord, when I go into these state affairs as the joint, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I'm going to bring some earth, and I'm not going to offer a sacrifice to Ramon. I'm just going to lay the earth down to demonstrate that I worship the Lord and not him. And he's asking Elisha, is that okay? You see, so many of us, what happens is when we give our lives to Christ, we do withdraw. We go to either two extremes, right? We go to the extreme of hiding because we don't want our family and our friends necessarily to know that we believe in Christ. Or we go to the other extreme where we're so obnoxious that we're ineffective. We've all oscillated at one place or another at one time, I'm sure. But he's asking Elisha, Is that okay? Do not hold this against me? I'm going to the Ramon Temple. And Elisha fascinatingly says, That'll work. Go in peace. That's what he says to him. It's amazing. Because God is now at the center of all of Naaman's life. His work his spiritual life, his family life. When I was at George Mason University, as a young believer, uh, on Wednesdays during lunch, we would eat lunch together, and David Jones would lead us in a Bible study. David Jones, at the time, was a minister of the Diocese of Virginia and directed the outreach to the George Mason Christian Fellowship. So we would leave for the summer, and when we got back, David would pepper us with questions. He was trying to make sure that, the, especially those of us who are new in our faith, you know, were identifying with Christ wherever we were found. And some of the people in the fellowship would say, he would say, well, where are you going to church now? And I remember a couple of them said, well, I can't go to church. Not when I'm home. He said, why not? He said, well, if, if, I, if I do, they'll know what I believe now. I don't want them to know that. What would they think? And he would work through us on those things. On the other hand, he really would work with us in being discipled that we're not overly belligerent, especially to our unbelieving family members. But the reality is, these three characteristics are the signs of what belief looks like a change of our thinking and a change in the way we view our possessions. And we're in the world, and we're out in the open. All signs of belief. And so if you struggle with any of those, I just want to encourage you, a little advertisement. Come to the Journey Orientation this Wednesday night. Uh, Because this is what we're all about, helping us to strike that balance in the way we live out our lives in mission. All right, well, that's what the signs of belief look like. Well, we have thats one picture. Let's look at the other one. There's the picture of Gehazi. The picture of unbelief. Well, unbelief, what do you mean? He's an he's a, he's a apprentice of Elisha, right? Exactly. And he doesn't get it. Verse 20, look what he says. And admittedly, this is a difficult story. See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. See, unbelief looks like Gehazi in that it looks down on others that are different from them. Different race, different socioeconomic, different religion, whatever difference it may be, he looks at Naaman and looks at me. My master has spared this Naaman the Syrian. He's looking down his nose at them. Secondly, possessions got a hold of him more so than even Naaman does. You see, Elisha didn't accept the gift. Why? It's not wrong for a minister to accept a gift, but Naaman came expecting these gifts to get him the cure. And Elisha wants Naaman to understand and not be confused in any way that this healing is a gift from the Lord. And there is no other but the Lord. And Elisha didn't accept it. But Gehazi felt, you know, he should have gotten something for that. So he concocts a plan. And it's a pretty good one, right? He doesn't ask for all the stuff. He just asks for one talent, which is a lot of money. And just a couple of suits from Joseph A. Bank, you know. The Italian ones. Because what we're seeing here in this picture is even though Gehazi, the apprentice of Elisha, who knows the Bible inside and out, Is the seminarian, the prophet in training, doesn't get the grace of God at all. Doesn't understand it in the least bit. And it's a total picture reversal from Naaman. You know, there's some people that are absolutely beautiful on the outside. Lovely to look at. And on the inside, they're utterly ugly. You ever known someone like that? You ever known church people who who know the Bible inside and out, and they're some of the most mean people on the face of the planet? Right? Some of the most angry people I've ever known have been in my church. Yet there are some people that on the outside don't have their act together, perhaps a little ugly, but on the inside they're beautiful. And what's happening here, for those of you who struggle that God judges Gehazi this way, what he's giving us is a picture. That Naaman, who didn't have his act together, even though it appeared that he did in Syria, he was absolutely leprous. And because he accepted the gift that God gave him out of total gratitude, was perfectly cleansed and perfectly beautiful. And what happens here to Gehazi? Well, look at verse 22 with me. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, Gehazi, and to your descendants forever, suing out from his presence a leper like snow. You see, so God judges Gehazi by showing the world, even though there's some people who on the outside have it all together and are beautiful, on the inside, they're ugly. And so what he does is a reversal to show the world how ugly Gehazi really is. You got a problem with that? I think it's a good thing for us to see. It's not fun to look at, but the reality is what it, God sees what's on the inside of us. People tell me, you know, God knows my heart. You don't want to have God look on your heart outside of Christ, right? No, what? What gives us is opportunity to see what's going on in Gehazi and the beauty of Naaman's belief. and gives us hope. Well, how do we know we're not a Gehazi? How do we know this? Well, it's interesting. Let's look at the third person in this whole story. I alluded to her last week, but she's vital to the whole story. And if you read over the story, you don't even see her. Go back and look at verses... 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my lord were that there were the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. This is a snapshot of grace in action. Let's look at who she is. Number one, she's in exile from her homeland. She's been taken away. She's a little girl, which means she's anywhere between 9 to 12 years old in ancient culture. That's the description of a little girl. She's in exile. She's probably seen her parents murdered before her eyes. She's probably seen her siblings taken away from her, never to be seen again. And she's in the one house in the whole nation of Israel, which represents her oppression the supreme military commander of the nation of Syria. And what happens is her master gets leprosy. The one who represents everything that's bad in her life gets sick. And can you imagine the the crisis of belief she probably had? If it was me at 10 years old, I would have said, ha, good. (laughs) Hope another ear falls off. Serves you right. (laughs) I want some satisfaction. Another thumb fell off. Can't grab anything now, can you, big guy? (laughs) But she doesn't do that. She has all the information she knows to save her master. She can hide it and just let him wilt away. Or she could have come to him and said to Mrs. Naaman, I know someone in Israel who can help him. She doesn't say that. Verse 3, she said, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy? There's love there. There's compassion there and longing there. How can that be? Because she's forgiven the great cost. This is costly forgiveness. She's exercised the grace that's been given to her, and the Lord has passed it on to someone else who's undeserving of it. See, some things are easy to forgive because it doesn't cost you very much. You know, you loan five bucks to someone, and they don't pay you back, and they forget all about it. That's easy to forgive, right? What if that same person borrows your car, doesn't tell you about it, wrecks it, and comes back and says, I wrecked your car, would you please forgive me? That's going to be a little more difficult, isn't it? It's going to cost you. How many nights had she laid her head on her straw pillow, on her mat, and just wept that she'd never see her mom and dad again, never see her brothers and sisters again? She could have taken in her suffering and turned it into hate and watched him die. Or forgiven him and offer him help. And he's saved. And without knowing it, Naaman's life is in her hands. But she knows it. And she loves him. Forgives him. Doesn't blame God. God and recognizes his presence in her life. Dick Lucas, that great Anglican minister at St. Helens for 35 years in London, says she has paid the price for usefulness. Isn't that beautiful? Paid the price for usefulness because unforgiveness will turn you into a bitter, hard person. But she paid the price for usefulness, forgave him, and she bore that suffering quietly and faithfully. And she now is mightily used of God, and we're the beneficiaries of her obedience to the Lord. Think about it. We're the beneficiaries. And able to bring grace into the situation, and Naaman is saved. One of the, the difficult things about the, the office that I hold is I better practice what I preach. I haven't spoken to my sister for nine years. My sister hasn't spoken to my mom in 24. Disagreements over my brother's divorce 24 years ago drove them to not speak to one another. My mom's tried to reach out. She won't reciprocate. My big disagreement is just because I spoke up to her and told her how it is and said, stop playing the victim, Julie. It isn't. The Anglican Church, which is the problem, it's the Episcopal Church's problem, as she sits on the vestry of Grace Episcopal Church in Madison, Wisconsin. You didn't realize that, that the Anglican Church is causing the Episcopal Church to fall apart. That's what many of them think, okay? I can talk to them blue in the face. That's, no, what you believe is non-Christian, and we're holding with the rest of the world, and the rest of the world's on our side, Sis. Hasn't returned a letter, hasn't returned a phone call, hasn't returned an email. And I said, well, before I preach this sermon, I better at least try to reach out or I'm being a hypocrite. I called her on Friday. She picked up the phone. For the first time in nine years, I had a, a conversation with my sister. It was pretty good. You know, she said, she, she instantly went to the church. <laughs> she goes, you know, we're pretty liberal. I said, yeah, Julie, I know. Uh, we're going to disagree theologically. That's okay. You're still my sister and I love you. Waited for the ammo to come through the phone line. <laughs> it didn't. Thank God. We had about a 15-minute conversation. It was good. And I had the opportunity to invite her to my mom's 90th birthday party that my, her grandchildren are throwing next year in Moultrie, Georgia. I go, come on, Julie, you need to just let it go and come. You see, you have to let it go and pay the cost for usefulness in God's kingdom. Because until we do, we won't be useful. Because, you know what, friends, we have a suffering servant that's available to each and every one of us. The ultimate suffering servant came, was separated from his father, much worse than she was. Jesus Christ came to earth as an exile. Separated was infinitely worse than anything that the little girl endured, and anyone for that matter. And we rejected him, we beat him, and we put him on the cross. And as he was dying, he looked at us and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he bore our punishment, and our life is in his hands, and he bore the punishment for us. And therefore, we too can be saved, and that's how you can know you're not a Gehazi. So closing application, two thoughts for us this morning. Are you suffering now in any way? In your work environment, in your school environment? Is there anybody who's causing you pain? You just struggle to forgive what they've done to you. Something bad has happened to you. Pay the price for usefulness for God's kingdom and forgive them. Young people, that, that person who makes fun of you in the school, that person who uh, causes you pain, Let them go. Forgive them. Adults, make that phone call (laughs) if you have to. Initiate relationship. Forgive them. I'm working with my mom. My mom has forgiven my sister. But my mom won't pick up the phone. I say, give her a call, mom. She might pick up. We need to pay the price for usefulness. That's the first thing. Who do we need to forgive? Secondly, don't just look at the little girl as an example. Look at her as a compass, pointing us to the one who is not just our example, but our Savior. The ultimate suffering servant. And let us, each and every one of us, by His Holy Spirit in us, embrace Jesus today. And He will turn us into a beautiful instrument And as we embrace him, we don't embrace Jesus and give our lives to Christ just to get heaven. We embrace Christ to get Jesus. And in so doing, we get heaven. So therefore, let's be useful, my friends. Let's pray. Lord.